Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The Volume. Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we have a bunch of great basketball to talk about, but we are not going to bury the lead because Steph Curry just dropped 50 in a game seven. Logan, the most ever played one of the signature games of his career. One of the great playoff games we've seen in this century to put away the Sacramento Kings in advance, and they will now face the Los Angeles Lakers. So let's start there with that massive dubs win. How did Steph manage to do what he did today, and where does this rank within the scope of great moments in his career? It's a great question, man. I think that when you're looking at the other great Steph moments, I think you have to think about Game 4 against the Boston Celtics Mm -hmm. in the NBA Finals uh, this last run. Uh, What's the other other big – there's another big final Steph game. Yes, Game 3, 2019 against Toronto when they were down Clay and KD, and he was facing a box and one, and he still dropped 47. They lost. I was actually at that game, but that was an unbelievable Steph performance. I think I think that has to be up there. I think that uh, the Western Conference Finals, one of those individual games, I'm not sure which one, against the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, some big regular season moments as well, 62 points versus the Blazers, uh, that regular season game against the Thunder, you know, the iconic one where he hits the game winner, scores like, what is it, 12 points in like a buck 30. I mean, it's insane. It's Something that only Steph Curry can do. The reason this one is so special, though, is because it's on the biggest stage. And I don't mean the biggest stage in the sense that it's the NBA Finals. We've seen Steph do this in the NBA Finals, Carson. This is Game 7, do or die. You're back against the wall. Your back is against the wall, excuse me. And you're doing this in a really, really tough environment. And the thing that blew me away about this game, Carson, is, one, you take a look at what he gets from his teammates. A really really bad clay game uh first half he shoots uh the great stat by zach cram uh, of the ringer uh clay attempted 10 plus shots uh, has attempted 10 plus shots in a half 95 times in his career this is the first time he's i, I think made uh one or two i mean it was a historically bad clay first it half was one 
is one. Historically bad clay first half, really bad clay game. Andrew Wiggins does not pull his weight, goes 5 of 16. You're not really getting any offensive creation outside of anybody else. Jordan Poole doesn't have an extremely dynamic game. The thing to me that was most impressive about this was what Curry did in the first half, Carson. I mean, the second half to me is very impressive. Pulling away, getting this big lead, running away with the game. If Steph doesn't go crazy in the first half, because he was going crazy, dude, knocking down every tough shot, and he just gets you so fired up. Uh, I was watching this game at work. People are laughing at me. I'm sitting over there fist pumping and just getting fired up watching Steph knock down all these tough shots. It's amazing because nobody else on the planet can do what he does. The tough shot making from any angle with any defender on him from anywhere on the court. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And Steph continues to reinforce why he is a top three player on the planet and why he is arguably maybe the best player on the planet. I mean, it's very good to hear you say that, Logan. Yeah, you know, very good. Some people would say Stephen Curry uh, is maybe a fringe top ten player in basketball. Those people are stupid. I am people. Oh, I am people. Uh, Steph continues to reinforce why he needs to be in that top three conversation every single night of basketball. Because let me ask you this point blank, Carson. You put any other NBA player in his shoes tonight, who else is coming away with a victory? I don't think you can point to anybody. I mean. Don't get me wrong, the Kings have a very bad defensive stretch in this second half, or excuse a very bad offensive stretch in this second half. Just go completely stagnant. The Warriors get out in transition, get some easy buckets. But I, I don't know anybody else you can put in this series, and they're coming away with a win with what we got out of Steph's teammates and what Steph needed to do to pull them and drag them across the finish line. Uh, so, yeah, two questions. I, I'll start with this. Do you think this is the greatest individual Stephen Curry performance uh, of all time? I think this is top two. I would probably still go with last year game four because I think of the stakes. Obviously, this is game seven. It doesn't get bigger than that within the scope of any series. But to be down 2-1 on the road in the NBA Finals facing the best defense in the league, an incredibly talented unit there, and to torch them with the level of perimeter shot making that he did, and they needed every last bit of it, it's tough to beat that given that it was a finals game. But I think you could certainly make a case for this, and I think this may be the most completely he's ever controlled a playoff game. Like just with the volume with which he exerted himself every possession. And I will say, that game, you think about the unbelievable perimeter shot making. This game, of course, he makes seven threes and was dynamic from beyond the arc. Out of handoffs, had a couple step backs, out of pick and roll. If he had a sliver, he was going to pull. But it was mostly, I felt, about how dominant he was inside the arc. I think it's one of the great paint Steph games that we have ever seen. His use of hesitations, weaponizing his scoring, freezing defenders, and then getting downhill. Attacking downhill off of handoffs, catching guys off guard there, because that's just not your top priority with Steph. You're thinking, oh my God, I got to close this gap. And he got a few easy drives off of that. Just the Kings couldn't stay in front of him. And his finishing, his floater game was sensational. And it's like you said, he just kept coming. He was the only thing that kept them in the game in the first half. And he was the reason that they put the Kings away so decisively and soundly in the second half. So I think you laid out the best candidates for like the 
best Steph performance ever. I would have his two best finals games, 2019 game three, last year game four, and this one sort of in a tier of their own. And I also think we have to talk about this as one of the great Steph series of all times because he went out there, he dropped 34 a night in this one, 62% true shooting, and in the two absolute do-or-die games, game three down 2-0 without Draymond Green, we saw peak Steph incredibly locked in. And then this, the ultimate do-or-die game seven, he was even better still. So I think this goes up in a special tier within the scope of his career. I think, again, there's still something different about a finals game. Like, I would say probably the two best playoff games period of this century are LeBron game one in 2018, where he goes out, gets his 51-8-8, eight and eight, and Giannis game six in 2021, where he gets his 50-5 and five blocks in a closeout. But this game from Steph is certainly in a tier right below that. And I think, not to be overly reactionary, but another year of peak Steph that we've seen now and another year of playoff moments like this, I think he continues to move up in the all-time conversation. Before this year, I did my entire top 10. I had him at number 10. I think he is now climbing into that top seven kind of range. And I think with another title, I mean, would probably become a top four player in the history of the NBA because obviously the four rings, people will devalue half of them because of how absurdly talented the KD teams were. But the fact that he is already responsible for two titles without another top 15 player on his team, which is really a rarity throughout NBA history and especially throughout 21st century history and how well he played in that 2015 run, obviously didn't get finals MVP, but was phenomenal throughout those playoffs overall how incredibly well he played last year and the level that he's playing at this year. And I'm not saying I think the Warriors are going to win a title, but if they did, I think with the five rings, with the regular season and playoff resume, with the fact that he makes a case for the greatest offensive player ever, given the diversity of his scoring brilliance, given his playmaking value, given how much he amplifies an offense by how much attention he demands at all time, you have a hard time keeping Steph out of the top five. And already, I think, his singular value... I got to move him, I think, past a guy like Shaq. And I think possibly past the 260 greats, Russell and Wilt. That's where I'm leaning with just the level that we have seen from Steph over these last couple years. It's incredible. He's 35, Logan. The only guy who pushes him for the best 35-year-old ever is, of course, LeBron, who was finals MVP in 2020. KD next year could get there. But this is nearly unprecedented dominance at this age now. Carson, in the scope of all-time greats, an all-time winner like Bill Russell, an all-time dominant, uh, just dominant force like Shaquille O'Neal, what gives to you Steph Curry the edge over guys like that? I think he has the most significant value in terms of amplifying his teammates and therefore the overall team success. I think, again, he makes a legit case for the greatest offensive engine that we've ever seen. And Shaq is arguably an unparalleled dominant individual force, and we know what he did in that run from 2000 to 02. At the same time, I do think that we have now seen Steph form a legitimate dynasty for a longer period of time in which he is the undeniable, consistent, top-tier piece, and he doesn't have the same kind of glaring limitation that Shaq does where he 
does need a guy who can initiate from the perimeter, Shaq. He was an abysmal free throw shooter. Steph is going to single-handedly propel you to be a dominant team offense. Russell single-handedly propel you to be a dominant team defense. And at that time in NBA history, that was enough for them to win 11 rings. They didn't have a lot of great offenses. But nevertheless, I think the fact that he wasn't a great offensive player does matter. And when it comes to Wilt, I think the individual ability is undeniable. I mean, the guy showed us that he could do everything at the highest level, obviously scoring, defense and playmaking as he transitioned into his later years. But the consistency with which he achieved that ceiling versus the consistency with which Steph has achieved his ceiling in a way that has led to title caliber teams. I mean, again, he's looking at four titles, six finals appearances, Wilt only got his two, only got one before heading to L.A. I just think Steph has the more complete playoff resume at this point, and that's more important to me. So I think he's climbing, and it'll be very interesting to see how high he can get. I got one more question, too, for you on Steph while we're on the subject of him. Do you think he's the best player alive? I'm going to hold out, but I think right now, he is probably who I would lean towards, but I think Jokic can legitimately make a case here. I think KD could, although I sour on the likelihood of that sort of by the day, because I just think Steph and Jokic have a different level of complete offensive impact. Every single possession, Jokic with his playmaking, Steph with the constant attention he demands. I mean, KD hasn't been the best player for his own team so far in these playoffs. And that is a luxury that Steph and Jokic never have, and yet they continue to turn out these unbelievable offenses. But I do lean Steph because I think, as we've talked about, he's a bit less exploitable defensively, although we will get to the Nuggets game plan defensively and how they ended up faring fine in game one in a little bit. Taking it back to the scope of this specific game, though, this to me felt like it was largely what we laid out, what the Dubs needed to do to win this game, right? It was a lot of the stuff they did in game three. Peak Steph... And then just all the winning plays. I thought it would have been nice if they got a good game from Clay, but when you get 50 from Steph, it doesn't matter. But the winning plays category is where Kavon Looney deserves a standing ovation, deserves a presidential medal of honor, man. This entire series, I think it's one of the great rebounding series of this century. And it was huge in swinging this game because, as you mentioned, Steph was nuclear in the first, but the dubs were still just like, hanging on and then came the third quarter where they pulled away and a huge part of that was the fact that they had 13 offensive boards in that period and seven of them were Kavon Looney he ate Sabonis alive he consistently dominated the glass I mean 15 boards a night in this series and I think the level of playmaking that we saw from him was so impressive this game wasn't the standout a lot of it was out of handoffs he did have a couple nice reads. He had that one moment in the third where he got a tough offensive board and then had a beautiful bounce pass to a cutting Wiggins who got fouled. But I just thought that epitomized the development of Kevon Looney, how far he's come as a player because Logan, he was their second best basketball player in this series. Like, I think he was. You can argue Draymond because of the playmaking and defensive value, but I think Looney's dominance on the boards swung game three to be a convincing win in their favor and swung game seven to be a convincing win in their favor and consistently was essential to them being competitive in the home stretch of this series. Games one and two, he was not so singularly dominant on the boards, but from that point forward, I mean, I think his fewest rebounds in a game out of the last five was 13. 
and he had 20 multiple times. So I just thought this was <laughs> such an incredible series from him, and he deserves so, so much credit. Future finals MVP, uh, Kavon Looney. No, dude, Looney deserves yeah. so much credit. Uh, they win the rebounding battle in this game, too. They win the offensive rebounding battle. I think I'm so glad you pointed out it was 13-1 to 1, uh, was the advantage they had on the offensive boards. That's huge in any singular quarter. Looney in this series, 7-15-4, dude, making good decisions, playing great defense, stifling Domas at the rim, and utterly dominating the glass. I want to talk schematically for a second what the Warriors did in this game, too, because you don't get a great clay game. You don't get a great Wiggins game. You don't get a classic Draymond game where he's, you know, diamond up and also making shots or anything like that. So what did they do? Well, they ran with a lineup that was best throughout the regular season. I thought that was a great adjustment instead of trotting out a lot of Jordan Poole minutes, um, mm -hmm. trying to mix that up like they did in the previous game. Uh, Poole is going to have to be better the rest of the way. I think that's stating the obvious if the Warriors want to have any shot He's going to have to show up at some point, right? All these guys are going to have to be better. Clay and Poole, especially. Poole, 12 points on 33% from the field. I think 25% from deep. Uh, one, the Warriors are paying him to be better than that. Two, Poole just flat out has to be better than that to swing games. But I really liked what Steve Kerr did rotation-wise in this, Carson. Like I said, leaning on your five heavy that have dominated through the regular season but also, mm -hmm. you get a lot of GP2 minutes, which I thought was great. So many hustle, effort, great defensive plays from GP, great closeouts. Uh, it got into a little bit of foul trouble, too, but you need a guy like that out there when you have uh, all these great shooters that you need to close out hard on and two guys who can really get downhill. I thought his impact was felt, and I thought Moses Moody played a really good defensive game, too, man. I didn't realize, like, how fucking long Moses Moody is, man. If he continues to come along, like, that dude's got a really long wingspan. It's easy for him to close out on a lot of other guys and contest shots. Um, and I thought him and GP did a really good job defensively in this game because, again, when you had these offensive periods stagnate, you need to step up on defense, and I thought they did. The one thing on the flip side of that that I didn't like effort and engagement-wise from the dubs, I don't know if you saw it, and this seems like it's been a theme throughout this series. I don't know if it was a thing in the regular season. When Clay and Poole are not knocking down shots, Carson, one, both of them have a tendency to hang their heads and kind of get down on themselves. And what that does is on the other end of the floor, it leads to one lack of effort, it leads to disengagement, and it leads to mistakes that are avoidable if you're locked in. And I just need to see, I need to see them keep their heads held high and get ready to play on the other end, man, because it could have come back to bite them on the ass. It doesn't, but I've seen that a lot throughout this series. Clay and Poole just getting flat out dejected because the offense isn't flowing. Their shots aren't falling. Uh, I want less of that, and I just want I want the attitudes to be better. I don't know if you saw that clip on social media uh, where Jordan Poole is walking. Uh, this was in Game Six. Poole is walking to the bench. Draymond goes to dap him up, and he like grabs Draymond's arm and is like, "Don't shake my hand." Like I'm. Like a moody little kid, man. Like, that's your boy. That's your teammate. He's trying to hype you up, man. And Steph went over there and had a word with him. That's another issue I had. I thought Kerr did a great job with the rotations tonight, uh, getting more impactful defenders out there. But from the top-level guys, when their shots aren't falling, I want to see a better level of engagement and effort from Clay and Poole, regardless of what they're doing on the offensive end. When you asked if I had seen a Jordan uh, Poole social media 
clip. I thought that you were going to talk about him trying to block Fox in the warmups. Like he's had some moments in this series, man, and they won in spite of him again. And I agree. I thought it was a good call to keep his minutes under 20 and he needs to significantly improve next series and going forward. Or I think he needs to continue to see his minutes decrease in this rotation. On the flip side of this, I think we need to dish out some Kings accountability because they did have the advantage in the series. They went up 2-0. They had a chance to close it out on their home court game seven, and they fell short. And I think the first guy we have to look at is DeMontis Sabonis, who has struggled throughout this series with the physicality he's facing on the interior from Looney and Draymond, their feistiness. He has been left alone as a jump shooter repeatedly and more often than not, either not taking the look or missed the look. And then I thought game seven, he came out in first half, played his best half of the series. I thought that he was running effective handoffs. I thought he was rolling very well off of that action. I thought he was finishing well around the rim and aggressively. He knocked down a couple jumpers that they conceded to him. He was dissecting the defense. He had a couple of offensive boards. The guy was playing well. He had 16, five and four. And then second half just sort of disappeared. I mean, again, eaten alive by Looney on the glass bricked a couple of open jumpers that were left to him, and you just stopped feeling his impact on the game entirely. And I think for a guy who was All-NBA, who was such a huge proponent in the revolution of this offense and this team's success, it is a black mark on his resume at this point in his career and a really embarrassing series. But I also think there's a couple other guys here. When you look at the best offensive rating ever, this team had a lot of weapons. It wasn't just Sabonis who fell short. Kevin Herter could not make a shot in the series, 20% from deep. Harrison Barnes could barely make a shot, 24% from deep. And then in this one, as much as Fox and Malik were able to carry this team throughout the series, I thought this was a rough game for both of them, but especially for De'Aaron Fox, who goes 5 of 19, and I thought definitely settled. I mean, compared to game six, where those two were like unstoppable downhill, either getting a good look in the paint or making a great read as a playmaker, creating an open three. It was a very different story in this one, but I also thought he did not see a lot of clean paints. There was a lot of good help from the Warriors in this one, second defender planted in there, and he didn't dissect them as a playmaker as much as he should have, and he took some bad shots. But also, we saw him put on some great difficult shot-making displays in this series, and this just wasn't one of them. So, those are the things that stand out to me. As a Kings fan, Logan, what's your take on what went wrong and who deserves the most blame for how this went down? Are you saying for this individual game or this series? Both. Well, in this individual game, I think, one, Kevin Herter's very disappointing again. I thought maybe we get... a. I thought maybe we get a different herder, man. You see that first play with it, the Kings set up. He hits that kind of leaning three at the top of the key, and I'm like, uh-oh, here comes Kevin Herter. Red Velvet shows his true colors. Very disappointing throughout this entire uh, series. Nine points, 20% from deep. Again, man, we've talked about this repeatedly stylistically. When you are a – when you do one thing well, and that's shoot the basketball, and you can't do that well, I, I think we're just – slowly seeing the death of these one guys. Not that they're not going to be out of rotations, not that they're going to be valuable night to night. Um, I would rather just have Davion or an impact defender out there, man, because Kevin Herter's literally just getting cardio. On this series, I think this is a very big stain for DeMontis Sabonis, and I think there's some adjustments he has to make in the future, Carson. And I think it's what we laid upon, uh, what we laid on earlier uh, when we were talking about this series, the difference between him and Nikola Jokic. What makes Jokic so unstoppable? 
it's a combination of things, but one of the biggest things for a big man is his absolute great touch from everywhere on the floor. And I think that's the first thing that Sabonis has to do is floater range, three-point shots, make them respect you, dude. It makes, it's going to make everything move so much easier. This entire series, Looney was camped in the paint. When you have a downhill, two really good downhill forces in this series, and Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox, it's just going to make their lives so much easier when they have to respect you. Like I said earlier in this series, it's a blueprint where they can camp guys down in the lane. That's a schematic liability that a lot of teams are going to exploit when they play the Kings, and that's how I would play them. Camp a guy down there, try to limit Fox and Monk, have another guy help to slide, and just play the backside guy, and don't worry about Domas at the top. That's going to be an issue until he expands his range. He got big-bodied on the class, was not great as a playmaker, was really a screen setter in this series. I mean, if you're looking at the defining thing that Domas did in this series, positively, he set good screens. That's about it. Um, I want to ask you, too, on the larger scope of things, Carson, what's the last time, when's the last time you remember an all-star or all-NBA player disappearing like this in an individual series? Like, I think of some of the big all-time gaffes, like Roy Hibbert disappearing completely in those playoffs. <laughs> I don't want to go apples to apples on that one because they're two very, very different players, but that's the one that sticks out in the forefront of my mind, all-star Roy Hibbert completely disappearing. Is there anybody that you can remember getting X'd out like this that was an all-NBA or all-star player on the playoff stage? I can think of a couple guys playing really poorly over the last two years. I think of Trey last year getting absolutely eaten alive by the Heat. And then I think of Julius Randle two years ago against the Hawks, brutally inefficient. But at the same time, those guys were like the focal points of their team. And the opposing defenses were very focused on singularly shutting them down. This was a case where Sabonis was supposed to be the best player, and it ended up being that another guy was by far the best player and got them to the brink, and he let them down. So I do think it's not that this is the worst playoff series that we've seen a star guy play in recent years, but it is sort of exceptional in the fact that it's like they still could have won in spite of that. And that's, I think, why this stings so much for the Kings and for Sabonis. But nevertheless, a great season for them. And I think there's just a few refinements they need to make. If they could get a legit two-way wing, that'd be nice. And I do think Sabonis has to become more respected as a floor spacer and develop more of a skilled post game. So he's not just reliant on, I'm going to bully you physically, lower my shoulder, because I think that limited him to offensive fouls, getting stifled by some of the Dubs bigs just man it up and hanging with him in that battle. So the dubs do now have the Lakers, Logan. What stands out to you as a key in that series? I think consistency, Carson, is the biggest thing for both of these teams. Uh, we saw, you know, three really good games of Warriors basketball uh, in their series against Sacramento. We saw three really good games of L.A. against Memphis. This is a much tougher test, I think, for L.A. stylistically. Memphis is a team that wants to get downhill. This is an L.A. team that's really good at taking away the paint. Golden mm-hmm. State doesn't really do damage like that. They can space the floor. They can kill you with their elite shooting. So I think this is going to be a test for both sides. I think this is a much better L.A. defense that Golden State is going to go up against, and they're going to have to consistently prove that outside of Steph Curry, they can produce reliable offense. And on the other side of that, we're going to have to see L.A. really reach their defensive ceiling to take away a guy like Steph and what the Warriors were able to do. Um, 
like I said, though, both of these teams have been very, very inconsistent, and I think that's going to be the uh, the big line. The other thing in this series, and this is stating the obvious too, is LeBron James going to turn it up, man? Mm-hmm. We're getting LeBron stuff, dude. We have not seen take over, control every possession, dominate the game, LeBron James. I still think he has that gear left in him, Carson. I still think we're waiting to unleash the beast, get him out of that cage. Um, and that's something I think to look forward in this series too because I don't think they needed that against Memphis. I do yeah. think they might have to unleash the beast against Golden State. Oh, I think they absolutely will. And I think this is going to be a hell of a series. And I'm conflicted on it. So I'll lay out the things that I think most clearly work for the Warriors and potentially just against the Lakers by their own doing first. So number one is that I looked at this matchup before the playoffs and I thought this is going to be tough for the Warriors because of the interior dominance, the size athleticism of LeBron and AD, but especially AD with the level that he's been playing at offensively. But with the level that Looney has been playing at as a rebounder and with what he and Dre just did to Sabonis, that does scare me a bit for AD offensively because, first of all, he has been dominating on the glass like never before. This is going to be a tough matchup in that capacity. We also just saw, like, for example, game six against Memphis, right? He is feasting off of mismatches, off the roll, getting smaller guys on him. But against a defender like Draymond, for example, if he gets that switch, he can be made uncomfortable by really physical guys, by really feisty guys. Again, AD's not going to bully you. He's not going to move you off your spot and get right under the bucket. No, he's going to shoot over you or he's going to catch a lob over you. But it's not going to be, all right, I'm going to go right at you and win this one-on-one matchup with physicality like that against the defender of this caliber. So I don't like AD and how he fares in that battle quite as much as I thought I would before the playoffs. I also do think we have to question the shooting consistency for the Lakers because they were 31% from deep last series. And we know that they have capable catch and shooters, but they don't necessarily have great catch and shooters. And LeBron's shot has largely been off. It was on in game six, but he entered that 17% from deep in that series. So I do think that's a point of concern. And then the other thing is what you laid out. Steph may be the best offensive player alive. He is the best player in this series, point blank. I don't think there's any question about that. I think he will be throughout. And he's capable of all-time performances, like what we just saw today and what we saw in Game 3. But without Steph playing at that level, the dubs looked vulnerable, Logan. I mean, those were their two convincing wins, right? It was otherworldly Steph. And... I do think the Lakers can create higher quality shots in this series. They are still the more physical, the bigger, more athletic team offensively with honestly offensive options who I trust more overall because Poole was like unplayably bad for most of this past series. You can't survive that against the Lakers, I don't think. Clay, of course, was erratic. I don't know how much of that you can take. And I honestly trust Austin Reeves as a consistent creator. We've talked about his poise out of the pick and roll, his ability to get to his spots, to facilitate for others, his ability as a pure shooter, if it's off the dribble or off the catch. And I do think that D'Lo is going to swing like a pendulum, but 
the highs for him are legit. And if he's your fourth best offensive player and you have two top 10 guys as the propellers, I can live with that because I do think LeBron will step up and ball out. I do think that he and AD are going to have to bruise. They're going to have to try to dominate in the interior. And I think for the most part, they will be able to, or at least do so with more success than the dubs are going to create real quality shots because against a not so good Kings defense, Sacramento for the most part got the better looks because they had the consistent downhill penetration. Of course, Clay doesn't need good looks to be effective. Steph doesn't need quote unquote good looks to be effective, but it does require some pretty incredible shot making from those guys. And with pools out of control, undisciplined style that we've seen, I just wonder if they have enough sources of consistent offense to battle with this more physical team with two top 10 players that has a ridiculous defensive ceiling. I do agree with you. This matchup is not quite as well suited to the Lakers, but they shut down the Grizzlies and stretches at a level that I don't think anybody else in the league could have. And they do have good point of attack defenders. Austin Reeves, Dennis Schroeder, Jared Vanderbilt, and they have elite rim protection because I think we're seeing the two best defensive players alive in this series. Logan, I don't think there's any debate about that. You take your pick between AD and Draymond. But I think AD just played the better series. AD just played one of the best defensive series that I've ever seen from anyone and can completely dominate a game on that end and is highly switchable, highly capable of dealing with the Warriors perimeter players in spots, with contesting those jumpers, with challenging them there. And then if you get by him, their additional rim protection, as we just saw in game six, right? The Lakers had 15 blocks and five of them were 80, but 10 of them were the other guys. They've got a lot of length, a lot of athleticism, a lot of size. And I think it's harder to score on them than probably anybody else in the league right now. So this is incredibly close. I want to pick this to go seven. And so I will, but I think the Lakers of the highest defensive ceiling in the league I think they have two top 10 players, and I think their role guys are legit good. I think their supplementary supporting offensive creation is good, and I trust those guys to do their jobs, and I just trust it a bit more overall. Like, again, dude, the Warriors were on the brink here. They were on the brink because Poole has been bad. Clay has not been consistently good enough, and I get that the Lakers were inconsistent, but so much of that was just effort-related. It was how much do we want it? We have seen them dominate without even great LeBron. So it feels stupid to pick the Warriors to lose a game seven at home, but I can't take myself to pick this series in anything other than seven because I do think it is so close and is going to be so much fun. But my gut feeling is Lakers in seven. What's yours? I think you laid it out perfectly, Carson. Uh, the, the key to me is the supplementary pieces here and... If we get Clay, if good Clay shows up and is consistently there night to night, I think the Dubs can get this done. If Jordan Poole shows up and is 16 to 20 a night efficiently looking to play, make, and create, I think the Warriors can get this done. But I do trust the Lakers role players a little bit more to create for themselves and to do their jobs. As weird as it is to say that, I'm going to go Lakers in six. It's so tough to pick against Steph and the Dubs. And if any of you want to say that we're idiots for it because they've been to six straight finals when they have like a reasonably talented core, I get it. But 
I do think that this team is the most flawed out of any that we've seen. And I do think this Lakers team legit is really good and has a really high two way. Open a limited time 11 month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash CB for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all. But I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because it ain't it? <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the other marquee matchup out West where we've already seen the second round get started. Suns Nuggets, big statement win for Denver in game one. What were your biggest takeaways from that? I feel like this is stating the obvious at this point in the season, but... I felt like all of this game showed us why Nikola Jokic is one of the most valuable offensive players on planet Earth, and the strides and the differences uh, between him and guys like KD and Devin Booker on any given Mm -hmm. possession, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker can get to their spots and can serve you a bucket. But the beauty of Nikola Jokic and what you said in previews, Carson, beautifully, he amplifies guys around him like nobody else, and he's just a mismatch for anybody on the court. Um, the Murray-Jokic pick and roll was disgusting in this game, too. The The big thing, too, man, is that when you get all of these switches, all of this movement against a Phoenix defense that isn't very well equipped to defend the Nuggets, if Aiton has to switch off on anybody else, it's a mismatch. There's nobody that can hold Jokic. If Aiton comes off of him, Jokic is going to there, and he's serving a bucket, dude. The next biggest thing, too, is the way these two offenses get their buckets. I don't think it's something that we stressed enough. Yes, we were very concerned about the Suns and how they score their points. Pull-up jump shooting. Is it going to be unstoppable versus the Jokic pick and roll um, and how he plays it and how he drops? Well, the Suns were able to get those buckets, but three, if I did my kindergarten, if I passed kindergarten and I did my math correctly, Carson, three is worth more than two. And repeatedly, man, repeatedly, 
All the Suns are filling it up for the mid-range. It doesn't matter because the Nuggets are just splashing from everywhere, man. Murray knocking down tough shots. MPJ knocking down tough shots. The, the role players knocking down wide open ones off catch and shoot. The discrepancy was mm-hmm. massive in this game at points, and that's really what made the difference to me to boil it down to two really broad key things. One, the Nuggets were able to consistently create open three-point looks, and the Suns kept going after the mid-range and attacking that. And Jokic just makes everybody so much better the way nobody really can on the Suns, man. KD came out in this game, and I was... I literally texted you, I've died and I've gone to basketball heaven. It was an (laughs) awesome opening first quarter of basketball. KD serves 15 points, and I'm like, oh my goodness, man, we're going to get a classic KD game. And the Nuggets through Jokic making everybody so much better, everybody playing off of him, and the Nuggets consistently creating open three-point looks that they were hitting, the margin just continued and continued to grow. And so, Carson, I don't know if Phoenix – I don't know if Phoenix's defense is just flat out – I wondered if it was effort against the Clippers. I think it's just personnel. I don't think they have the personnel here to defend Denver. And – I think on the other end of the ball, they don't have the personnel to create open three-point looks with that much ease. Mm-hmm. I think the Suns are good at creating consistent offense, but three is worth more than two, and the Nuggets are going to consistently create those open looks, while I don't think Phoenix can on the other end, while they can't play defense on Denver. Um, I, this was a, a great game from Denver, and they proved why I think a lot of people have still been sleeping on them, man. Nikola Jokic is that dude, bro. He makes everybody so much better. It's the cohesion, the synergy. It's beautiful, and it, it translates, man. So, yeah, very, two very broad points for me, but I think those are the biggest differences in game one. I think we have to start with how capably the Nuggets did guard the Suns' pick and roll because I was terrified by that matchup. I thought that they might have to get a bit gimmicky, like talking about sticking Jokic on a corner shooter for stretches, right? But they didn't. Now, they did help aggressively and leave that weak side corner wide open, really, no matter who was there. If it was Chris Paul, I saw a couple times it was KD. They just said, okay, if you're going to make that pass, we'll live with that, and they didn't. And so Jokic always had that backline help, And that allowed him to come up and play much higher out of his drop, come up closer to the level of the screen. And, I mean, I thought that he was perfectly capable of there. He's a big body. He's a smart positional defender. And so those guys didn't get a lot of great looks. There was really only one stretch in the third where CP on a couple of possessions, it might have even been back-to-back, Jokic was too deep in his drop. And it was basically just layups from mid-range. It reminded me of that 2021 series where CP cooked at an unbelievable level for mid-range facing Jokic's drop. But overall, I thought they did perfectly fine there. The Suns did not have an explosive game out of pick and roll. And as you said, dude, and this is a problem that I've always had with the Suns. This dates back to when they made the finals run and then last year. And now they have Kevin Durant. So you think, okay, there's a different level of explosiveness But it's hard when you're not a dynamic three-point shooting team or a dynamic, overwhelming, downhill paint scoring team. And these guys are like the best version of the pull-up mid-range jump shooters. But it's like you said, dude, three is more than two. And if you're creating open threes all night, 
guess what? You have a higher ceiling offensively. And I thought that that's what we saw. I think the Nuggets have the best offense in basketball. And you talk about Jokic. First of all, Aiton is a problem right now. Like, I don't know what happened to 2021 playoffs Aiton. I have never liked DeAndre Aiton. And then I thought, oh, wow, maybe this guy's proving me wrong in that run. Well, I liked him as a prospect, actually, but he was phenomenal in that run with his engagement defensively on the glass. And then in this one, it's like just too many moments where he's lapsing in effort. Jokic had 19 rebounds in this game, Logan. DeAndre Ayton had seven, including eight offensive boards for Jokic, including one position where he got three and somehow missed all the finishes, which I thought was insane. And Ayton is just out of the play. He's just conceding them. Like, you combine that, Ayton not having that impact on the interior with KD's carelessness with the ball at seven turnovers in this game. And it's not just now that the Nuggets are creating better shots. They also took 17 more shots. They have more possessions. They have more chances. So I thought that was big. But to me, the story of this game wasn't Nikola Jokic. I mean, I expect him to do what he does every night. And I honestly thought in terms of finishing shot making, this was an off night from him. Nine of 21. But Jamal Murray, man continues to prove that he is one of the best pure shot makers in the league. And since the start of that bubble run, he's putting up 27 points and seven assists a night on the playoff stage on 46% from deep, 62% true shooting. You cannot guard Murray Jokic pick and roll. It is impossible because of how devastating Jamal is as a pull-up jump shooter from beyond the arc or the mid-range. This was a mid-range clinic. Like, he's one of the best mid-range shooters in the NBA, 48% in these playoffs. So when you get that level of star production from a lead ball handler, and then when you have probably the best overall offensive player in the NBA, Nikola Jokic, the maestro, and then you have MBJ's lethal shooting, KCP's lethal shooting, Bruce Brown was explosive in this one, transition as a cutter, and then you have Aaron Gordon as like the ultimate dunker spot, lob threat, drop-off threat. I just don't know who's going to put up a better offense than this team. And you're right, the Suns aren't good defensively. That was, I think, my biggest mistake in projecting these playoffs was thinking that the Suns could defend not at an elite level, but at like a top 10 level. And I think that they are every bit as flawed as the Nuggets defensively. And I think Denver has the more reliable offensive formula. And that's what we laid out before. That's why I took the Nuggets in seven. But this was like a glaring instance of it. It It's a very glaring instance of it. And... I want to ask you, too, I mean, what the hell can DeAndre Ayton do differently? How would you, what's the best way, maybe this is a loaded question, maybe the answer is, like you said, you can't. How do you defend the Murray Jokic pick and roll, man? Because there were a lot of times in this game where I was frustrated where, I mean, Ayton steps up so far. And like I said, the anytime you have that switch, like even the help side guy, even if KD slides to Jokic, too, it doesn't really matter personnel-wise who's out there for the Suns. Maybe I'm answering my own question here. You see it a lot. Murray kept burning them in the mid-range, and Aiden would dramatically step up on him, which leaves a wide... I mean, you could land an airplane in that lane, man, where Jokic is rolling to the rack and has a wide-open area to the paint. And I'm like, DeAndre, like you can't do that, man. You're. I know you don't want to give that those points up to Jamal because you've been getting burnt all game long, but you're giving Jokic a landing strip to either go up with it and dunk. I mean, again, Aiden is just so frustrating to watch as a defender, as a rebounder, as a player, period. 
Is there anything different that you think Phoenix can do to limit it whatsoever, or are they just point-blank screwed? I think they're pretty much screwed, but I do think I would rather live with Jamal Murray pull-up jumpers than Jokic either scoring in the paint or drawing help and then finding whoever's open, which he inevitably will do. Did this game make you feel like differently about this series? Do you think the Nuggets are going to get this done sooner than you think? Because I think there was nothing encouraging about this, no. about the Phoenix Suns. You still are going to go Denver in seven. Well, I would like to see one more game because the reality is that Katie and Book can go off for 70 combined on any given night. And... I want to see just another game and see what level they can reach. But yeah, I mean, the Nuggets looked way better. And the reality is that their supporting cast is just way better, Logan. Like, I mean, I do think there's a legit battle between Jokic and KD for the best player in the series. And Book should certainly be third. But then after that, fourth is Jamal Murray. Fifth and sixth is probably Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. Like... I love CP, man. I think he's a top five point guard of all time. He is not exerting that level of impact on the game right now. And Aiton, again, way too inconsistent. And then, once you get past the top four for both of these teams, it's like KCP and Bruce Brown as my five and six. Christian Brown coming in with his athleticism and effort and shooting versus the Okogies and the Craigs of the world. I just think I just think Denver is a better team. So I'll stick with seven for now out of respect for booking KD, but... I would not be surprised if this ends up being a bit quicker. Let's talk about the other series that we saw kick off today. Knicks Heat, Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat did it again. Of course, Jimmy hurting his ankle in this fourth quarter was able to finish. We don't really have an update on that, but certainly something to watch. What was your biggest takeaway from this? I think the Knicks can still get this thing done. I was just disappointed with what they went away from. Uh, after the first half, man. I mean, I thought the first half of this game was really, really encouraging. Miami proving a lot of the things that we said. They're really relying on three-point shooting. They're really relying on them falling down. And it's really exacerbated by the fact that Tyler Euro isn't out here. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. a sore thumb, dude, that when Jimmy doesn't have the rock in, their ha- in his hands and is creating and is getting downhill, or if Bam is running point and opening up stuff for cutters, it's going to be a three, and it's going to be contested. Like, the Miami offense is still very limited. Please don't get away from that. A lot of people I saw on social media were questioning whether the Cleveland Cavaliers made the Knicks look like the world beaters on offense that they weren't. First of all, I don't think the Knicks were world beaters offensively in that first one. I think the Knicks were pretty mediocre, and we saw that. I still do favor the Knicks offense. I just thought they got away from what really worked for them, and that's getting downhill it's like the Knicks played into the Miami hand later in this game they got really reliant on three-point shots Mm -hmm. there was a period in this game where they missed 13 of their last 15 three-pointers you know man Einstein had a really good quote one of my favorite of all time insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results when I keep clanging threes I'm probably going to switch it up I mean, at the start of this game, Jalen Brunson is exerting himself, and Jalen Brunson did not have a great game, too. That was largely part of the issue. Missing pull-up jumpers, missing mid-range jumpers, missing threes. Brunson's going to have to be better down the stretch because he is their lead offensive creator. 
I still don't feel differently about how the Heat can guard him. There's nobody that can hold Jalen Brunson in this series. I fundamentally believe that. You better stick Jimmy on him or that's barbecue chicken. I mean that. I think Jalen Brunson is cooking everybody not named Jimmy Butler that is put in front of him. So I think that's an anomaly. I think Jalen Brunson is going to be better in this series. But they just got away from what was working. Brunson was getting downhill. He was kicking the ball out. RJ fired me up, man. RJ had such a good first quarter. He was getting downhill. He was attacking closeouts. He was attacking guys off the ball. Because as struggling as, as frustrating as RJ Barrett is as a basketball player night to night, he did something really well in this first half that I liked. He took an undersized Miami guy that is not physical, that is not aggressive, that cannot hold RJ physically in taking him downhill and getting to the rack. Using that out of the pick and roll, creating space. He threw a couple lobs. Uh, he had one to Obi um, that was sick out of the pick and roll. He had another lob in that first quarter. And I'm sitting there going, uh-oh, the heater on the ropes, man. And I never count out Jimmy Butler. I'm never doing that again. I always knew that Miami could make it close. But they stopped doing that. They stopped getting downhill. They continued to settle. They stagnated. They shot a lot of threes. And they played into Miami's hand. Miami wants to play in transition. They want to get out there. They want to get shots up. Uh, you know, Kevin Love has three back-to-back yep. -back Mahomes TD passes that are just easy buckets. Um, so to me, I just thought the Knicks got away from their identity, and that's what lost them the game. They controlled the first half. They controlled the first quarter. They were playing Knicks basketball, and they were playing within themselves. And then they started playing Miami Heat basketball and chucking threes. This is not a good New York Knicks shooting team. We know that. That is not playing Knicks basketball. And I just thought if they stayed within themselves, they could have had a better chance to win this game. That was my biggest takeaway. I didn't think Miami did anything exceptionally well except get hot. I thought Kyle Lowry mm. played a really good game. I thought Jimmy did his thing, ankle injury and all. And I thought they played really good defense. But it wasn't anything yeah. that was really new to me about Miami. Um, they kind of did their thing. I just thought the Knicks got away from what they did really well offensively. Well, I think you have to give Miami some credit for that. And that's a huge takeaway from this game is just we know this isn't a good Knicks shooting team. As you said, they were below average in the regular season. They're 27% from deep in these playoffs, and they were 7 of 34 in this one from beyond the arc. But the reality is, we saw Miami start sending multiple guys at Brunson more often. And then guess what? You need to be able to shoot the ball well enough on open looks to keep that defense honest. Because if you don't, they will continue to do that. And guess what? Now they're both taking away Brunson and you're clanging your open looks. And you said it, dude. That third quarter when everything swung, you go 2 of 12 from deep. And you let up a few easy transition buckets. And shout out Kevin Love for the level that he's played at in this series. Like legitimately awesome floor spacer, the outlet passes, vintage moments. The fact that he was a buyout guy is crazy, especially given the glaring lack of skill in the Cleveland front court. Like, I get it. There's not a lot of ideal lineups that are Love, Mobley, and Allen, but with the shortage of bigs who we saw them turn to, I mean, give me more of Love in one of them minutes. Like, I just thought that is a mistake clearly with retrospect but yeah the Knicks were playing great in this first half I mean they were getting downhill consistently Brunson was getting into the lane and I will say he would have had a great game if he had knocked down a couple of triples in this one he was 0-7 from deep other than that I thought he was great inside the arc 
Jimmy on him, I agree, is a challenge. But outside of that, it's like you said, he's winning those matchups. And RJ was mostly really good. But you say you don't think the Heat really did anything all that well in this game. I think the Heat did exactly what the Miami Heat do. They out-executed the Knicks. They took away their plan A. They were sharp consistently, only eight turnovers in this game. They defended hard. Made the Knicks beat them with shooting, which they couldn't do. They battled on the glass. Did not get swallowed up, destroyed in that arena like I thought they might. And I thought Bam mostly did a good job battling with Mitchell Robinson there. And so they put themselves in a position to where it's like, yeah, we make a few shots from deep. Jimmy plays pretty well. One of our guys step up. This time it was Lowry. We can win this game. And you shoot yourself in the foot, not just with the droughts from beyond the arc, but also I thought the fourth quarter approach from the Knicks overall was really bad offensively. Again, RJ was mostly very good, but you have four straight possessions that are dictated by him in the clutch, none of which result in buckets. I just think that has to be Jalen Brunson time across the board. You have an injured Jimmy Butler out there for the last five minutes, no effort made to target him. Like, bottom line, the Heat made less mistakes, and they forced the Knicks into more mistakes, and the Knicks shot themselves in the foot, and that's how the Heat win a lot of games. I mean, the Bucks they had to do that, plus Jimmy get 40 and 50 because the Bucks are so much more talented, but against the Knicks, they just needed good Jimmy, really good Lowry with his shooting, his playmaking, his overall effort, and then you guys beat yourselves a bit. So I do still think that New York is more talented. I think it'll be interesting to see if Randall can come back and just introduce more offensive juice. We know there's a real upside downside element with him, but I still think the heat need Jimmy to be fantastic to win this series because I mean, this was an abysmal, abysmal shooting game from the Knicks and it was early from the heat too, but they ended up being okay from beyond the arc, but without Jimmy, I just don't think they have enough offensive creation. And I don't think they have enough athleticism defense. Like (laughs) he is their best player in basically every respect. He was amazing on the glass in this one, securing them extra possessions, four offensive boards, I think 11 overall. So they need him to be healthy and they need him to be good. I still think the Knicks win this series, but the Miami heat continue to Miami heat Logan. And we can look at any talent deficit in the world. I mean, it would be crazy if we saw it against the Boston Celtics over a seven game series. Right. But the Knicks talent deficit, especially without Julius Randle, or if he comes back and plays like he did last series, bad Julius Randle, is not significant enough to where they are invulnerable and invincible, and I think that we saw that in this one. 100%. 100%, man. I am not ready to count out Miami at any given point. Uh... Well, except for last series, of course. We well, yeah. pretty confidently counted them out after game two. Jimmy's, Jimmy's going to Jimmy, dude. It's like the... Jimmy Hemi. We do not care. Uh, The one thing that really blew me away about this game, too, dude, is the rebounding battle. Knicks grab. (laughs) I said this before game one. Per 100 possessions is what I meant to say. I said per game on last broadcast. Um, Shout out journalistic credibility. Uh, The Knicks grabbed 10 more uh, total rebounds per game than the Miami Heat and almost grabbed 10 per game. I did it right there. Per 100 possessions. Uh, They also grabbed 10 more offensive boards per 100 possessions than Miami. In this game... They grabbed nine more boards, and it was that ice-cold shooting, I think, from deep that made uh, the difference. The the Heat score 18 more points from behind the arc than New York. That'll swing it for you in a a seven-point game. I think the Knicks can still do a lot of the things that we laid out, Carson. Be better defensively, win the battle on the glass. 
Although I do think they might need Julius Randle, Carson, and I think they might need Julius Randle to be good, which is scary. Um, <laughs> because with Julius, right, Obi, I thought, played a pretty good game outside of taking a few too many threes. Like, I know he was feeling himself. I know he knocked down four of them, but it's like, Obi, that's not your thing, man. You know, attack a closeout or maybe swing that ball, try to look for a better shot. Um Obi's still not a guy who's really offensively skilled in the way that he's going to create for himself. And I think that's where Julius and his physicality, because I don't want Julius settling for a lot of pull-up jump shots. I don't want Julius taking a whole lot of jump shots in general. Again, this is an undersized Miami team where I think if you're getting switches, you know, maybe use a pick and roll uh, with Jalen Brunson and Julius and get a smaller guy on Julius and let him go to work on that smaller guy and get downhill. That's where I think he could really make a difference. Again, there's a lot of contingencies with that. That's Julius Randle, one, playing well. That's Julius Randle playing within himself and getting downhill, which is something that sporadically Julius likes to move away from. Uh, I, I am moving that way, though. I think they might need Randall to finish this series off, dude, because schematically, I think that if they continue to do this, if they try to X Jalen Brunson out, I don't know if the shooting surrounding New York is good enough if you're giving them open looks, point blank, period. This is not a good shooting team. Um, so I, I'm starting to feel like New York might need Julius Randall to play and play well to, to win this series. I think they might need that second creator. I think that that may be right, but no matter what, the Miami Heat need Jimmy Butler, so I really hope that he's healthy because I could not take another playoff injury, man. These last three years have just been too brutal. Let's wrap this bad boy up by previewing the one series that we haven't touched on yet, hasn't started. Sixer Celtics, Logan, what's a key that stands out to you here? If Joel Embiid plays, I mean, we don't know if Embiid is going to be out there. I think that's the biggest one that we have to start off with. Uh, is Joel Embiid going to be healthy? Uh, I, there's a lot of great offensive talent, man. We've talked about it. Tobias Harris played a great, great first series. Had the most points per jump shot of any player in these playoffs. Tyrese Maxey is a dynamic bucket out of the pick and roll in the mid-range. Off dribble. Difficult shot making from everywhere on the court. James Harden, night to night, can spray from behind the arc, is a great playmaker. So there's still offensive talent here, don't get me wrong, but you need your best player out there and you need him to play well, uh, something that Embiid honestly struggled a little bit much with. The Brooklyn Nets, like you said, did not dominate the way we expected Embiid to. Even though they were throwing doubles, like you said, you need him to be a great playmaker. I don't expect Boston to defend him like that. I think Boston's going to be content with using Horford, with using Robert Williams, who have defended him well in the past. You've got a, long, a lot of long-rangey wings. If you need to switch in the pick and roll, take a possession with Tatum or Brown on him. Uh, point blank, if Joel Embiid does not play in this series, is not 100%, I would not take Philadelphia to win this series. If he is 100%, I would not take Philadelphia to win this series either. Um, I think Boston is very well equipped to defend Joel Embiid and I think they're the deepest roster in the league, but I think that's where we have to start. Um, and I don't expect Carson, regardless, I don't know about you and how you're feeling, I don't expect Joel Embiid to be great. We have yet to see him be great, period, on the playoff stage, and I think this is the best defense that he's going to be matched up against. I think these are the best individual players uh, equipped to guard him in these playoffs. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know, man. I don't think we're going to get great Joel Embiid regardless of if he's fully healthy or not. And so... He's not going to be fully healthy. There's no chance. I mean, 
I think he'd have to be unconscious from deep. I think he's going to have to be enabled as a playmaker more, and I don't think he's really got that in his bag. Um, I'm going to go Celtics in six. I was thinking Celtics in five. I think the Sixers have a lot of offensive talent here. I think they can steal a game or two with guys getting hot. Um, but I'm going to go Celtics in six, man. I still think they're the deepest and best team left in this field. I believe in Boston. And as a faith thing, man, I saw Boston last year get through the playoffs with their myriad of brain farts and bad stretches and late parts of games. The Philadelphia 76ers, two of their four best players, are still prone to, for lack of better terms, shitting the bed in the playoffs. And I have yet to see them do anything great on the playoff stage. I'm going to bank on the team that I have faith in that I think is just better overall. That's the Boston Celtics. I think Boston is better top to bottom. And I don't know if some people were particularly impressed by Philly sweeping Brooklyn, but I feel like maybe they were because there seems to be a bit of a revival of Philly can win the East movement. But Brooklyn just was starved for offensive creation. We talked about it. I picked Philly to sweep them. They won game four without Joel Embiid. Like they were the number 24 offense in the league post all-star break. Logan, they won a lot of games with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So they were a playoff team. They did not win a lot of games with their core that showed up to the playoffs. But regardless, I think Boston's a lot better. I think that first of all, we have to look at James Harden and the level that he's playing at, especially with Embiid. It looks like Probably going to miss game one, maybe game two. Like, we just don't know the exact severity of his knee injury right now, but it's not looking good. And Harden, although his command of the game is great as a playmaker, although, yes, his shooting from beyond the arc was really dynamic at points last series, could not score in the paint, as we talked about, against a really long, athletic, switchable Brooklyn defense with a good rim protector, a very good rim protector in Nick Claxton, who could also switch out and hang with him in space. He was shut down, shot 26.5% on two-pointers. And now you're facing Boston. There is not a better group of quality perimeter defenders in the league. I mean, shout out to everybody in Brooklyn, McCall Bridges and Royce O'Neal and Claxton and Cam Johnson and all those guys. But now you're talking about Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Derek White, Marcus Smart with a very switchable big in Al Horford, a great rim protector in Robert Williams. And so I worry about how hard and fares in that matchup. And I do think he might be prone to settling. And without Embiid, if he can't be a great all-around offensive player, we're talking interior score, perimeter score, and playmaker, I just don't know that they have enough. I mean, I love Maxi, I love Harris, but those guys aren't like the kind of offensive engines. And this Boston team is just so talented. I don't think that's something that's being stressed enough at all, Carson. One, the bevy of great perimeter defenders here. I don't expect him to try to get downhill often against Derek White and Marcus Smart. And I think that's the biggest thing that you're hitting on here, too, is without a Joel Embiid, there's not a guy that can create space for James Harden to go with those guys, to create a sliver of a lane for Harden to get downhill for one, to get to that floater range, or to hit a little pocket pass to get to Embiid out of the pick and roll. Because a lot of people, so many James Harden defenders, what are you talking about, man? Harden averaged 22 and 10 this season. You know, he was he was great. What are you talking about, man? Harden cannot create an isolation anymore. And I damn sure I'm not picking James Harden to create an isolation against a guy like Derek White or against a guy like Marcus Smart. And in certain matchups, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. I'm not. You couple that with the fact that Joel Embiid 
one of the best pick and roll partners in basketball is not going to be out there. I mean, it's going to be hard and dribbling in between his legs. It's going to be a lot of those Royce O'Neal possessions where he's trying to just flail off of a guy to create space. I, Harden, yeah, man, do not bet on James Harden. I, I think it's could, I think it could be a disastrous series for him, man. I mean, this is going to be the toughest matchup that he's gone up against all season. And without Embiid, I just think he's going to be in hell, dude. There is no mm-hmm. way for James Harden to create space inside the arc without a great Joel Embiid. They don't have a prayer without Embiid overall, but I do have concerns about how Embiid holds up too, as you mentioned, because I do think that if he's out there, yeah, we'll see Boston try to deal with him in single coverage more because they do have stouter guys on the interior. Horford, really, who we know has fared well against Embiid before. At the same time, I think Embiid has proven that he's a pretty unstoppable one-on-one score. And it was Boston who he gave whatever it was, 54-2 to in that last week of the regular season. So I think you should throw doubles at him. And they have a lot of long, smart athletes. You got good personnel for it. Make him beat you as a playmaker. We've seen him get flustered. We've seen him average more turnovers than assists. This past series, seven out of his 10 career playoff series. So make him beat you that way. Make him dissect you. But I also could see him not being quite as effective as a one-on-one scorer because if that knee is bothering him, right, is he going to be as physical or is he going to be more reliant on his jumper overall? which wasn't great this last series. Again, facing lots of doubles, but 46% from the field, one of eight from three. And historically, although this was his best season ever as a jump shooter, we have seen him struggle in that arena in the playoffs. So I think he's got to make great decisions because I do think he's going to see a lot of doubles again. I don't know why people would stop. I mean, it worked. Like obviously Philly won all of their games, but game one I thought was the only spot in which Embiid was consistently making very good decisions and the Sixers shot the hell out of a bunch of open threes. Games two and three, I thought, were much more of grinds than they should have been and Embiid did not play well in either one of them. I mean, what was it? 14 turnovers combined between the two of them, settling a lot, and Philly had to to clutch up in the second half in both of those. So not really trusting Embiid to be at 100% having concerns about this specific approach that you can throw at him anyways, having concerns about Harden, and then just thinking Boston is more talented. I like how they match up with Philly's stars defensively more than vice versa, right? I think they have good personnel to guard Harden, very good. Good personnel to guard Maxi, Good personnel to guard anybody, Logan. They're like the most versatile defensive team in the league. I like their depth of ball handlers more. I just think they have more impact guys up and down this roster with the Brogdons, the Derek Whites, the Marcus Smarts. We know that this Boston depth is special. I like their shooting ceiling more. Like, I just think they're flat out better. So I'm going to take Boston in five. Wee! I think I might be with you there, bro. Um, It's either Boston in five or six for me. I'll take them to... Yeah, I'll take him to take him out in the TD Garden. I'll take uh, I'll take Boston in five. All right. Well, very excited to see that one get started and, of course, thrilled with the basketball that we saw this weekend, Logan. So that's all that we have for you guys today. Hope you've enjoyed. If you did, please go ahead, give us a rating, if you would, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to the audio, if you're watching on YouTube. Appreciate you. Hope you enjoyed. And if you guys don't know, you can catch all of our full shows 
on the Volume YouTube page now because we are with the Volume. If you haven't listened to the last couple episodes, super honored and excited about that. And it's been a blast so far, and we appreciate all the support that we've gotten. So hope you enjoyed the show. Please check us out across social media. TikTok is at NerdSesh. That's where we're going to be the most consistent, prolific with our content. Instagram is the same handle. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. So check us out across all those places if you want more of our content. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.